Support for today's show comes from Squarespace because, hey, you have a great idea that you should turn into a reality. I know you have that. I know you can do that because Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind or showing off writing, photography, uh, just cool pictures of yourself. That's the thing you can do with the Internet. And you can do it with Squarespace's beautiful templates and 24-7 award-winning customer support. So head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You know, I hail from Glen Ellen, Illinois. It is outside of Chicago. That was sort of my center of the world in terms of comedy, especially growing up. And so, of course, I have immense respect and appreciation for the second city. Well, guess what? You can study at the world's only film school dedicated entirely to comedy by going to the Harold Ramis Film School at the Second City Training Center. They're looking for diverse applicants of all experience levels and backgrounds. Apply by May 15th for the year-long program starting this fall in Chicago. Go to RamisFilmSchool.com. His name is spelled R-A-M-I-S. If you don't already have enormous affection for him and know exactly how it's spelled, uh, go to RamisFilmSchool.com or call 312-883-1241 to schedule a tour or to attend their next open house. That's 312-883-1241. Quick announcement for all you wonderful listeners of the Cracked Podcast, in particular the ones near the Great Lakes, in particular Lakes Michigan, and I think Superior is the one by Minnesota. Anyway, we're bringing the Cracked Podcast to Chicago, Illinois, April 11th, with guests Sarah Sherman of Adult Swim, Hell Trap Nightmare, and more. Also, journalist Maya Dukmasova of the Chicago Reader and historian Jane Daly of the University of Chicago. Then, April 12th, St. Paul, Minnesota, I will be joined by host of The Hilarious World of Depression and Wits and so many more shows, comedian and podcaster John Moe. Also be joined by stand-up comedian and Star Tribune artist to watch Chloe Radcliffe and historian Elaine Tyler May of the University of Minnesota. That is in St. Paul, Minnesota, April 12th. Prior show, Chicago, Illinois, April 11th. Tickets are in the footnotes. Until then, here's another episode for you right now. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also going to read you the text of an advertisement in an illustrative way. Uh, the ad is, is not from a sponsor of the show. It's just a different company, and they are called Fiverr, with two R's on the end for some uh, probably like Silicon Valley reason. But Fiverr bills itself as an online marketplace for freelance labor uh, where people have the freedom to be paid as little as $5 for doing a task. You know, finally freedom from minimum wages. Anyway, in 2017, this company, Fiverr, ran an ad campaign called Endures We Trust. And I want you to see a mostly text poster from that campaign. It was just text over a, a cool lady's face. Uh, but since this is an audio medium, you must see it with your ears. So here's the poster's text, quote, you eat a coffee for lunch. You follow through on your follow through. Sleep deprivation is your drug of choice. You might be a doer. End quote. You just saw it. And that description of a life where coffee replaces food and where sleep deprivation is chronic and where you fixate on tasks instead of well-being, that leads directly into this week's topic. Our topic this week is why you feel like crap. 
That's the whole topic. It's very simple. One more time, that is why you feel like crap. Fair warning, I will probably think of a more eloquent way to put that in the official title of the show. You'll see something different there. Uh, But either way, that title you'll see will express this same very simple concept. Why are you maybe often achy, sleepy, frazzled, or otherwise uh, not feeling all that hot? And a surprising number of the reasons for that are surprising and are also, uh, we think, self-inflicted by a lot of cultural pressures, which are broken down brilliantly in a recent double column by my guests today. Because when I say we, I'm joined by someone who writes for Cracked and the New York Times bestseller list as David Wong. His true name is Jason Pargin, and Jason has done some really remarkable digging into new studies and old habits and other eye-opening information, which we're going to dive right into. So please sit back or lay down and rest up and sleep deprivation is not an xbox achievement or something don't do it you don't get points either way here's this episode of the cracked podcast with jason pargin i'll be back after we wrap up talk to you then a double column that we're drawing on, but there's so much uh, meat here. It's really impressive, man. Yeah. And we're going to get into some subjects that annoy me greatly. (laughs) So while I am not normally the angry podcast person, this subject, which sounds benign, we're talking about health and bad health habits that are kind of baked into society. This stuff bugs me a lot. Because to me, what we have is a culture that really puts pressure on you all day long to do deeply unhealthy things and then shames you for doing them. It, it is like, oh, you stayed up all night like we told you to? How dare you? And that's <laughs> the, the first one we're going to talk about, the, like, the sleep deprivation crisis in the modern world. It is about as perfect an example as exists of this, right? Yeah. Because this is a case where, look, sometimes people ask me, like, why, why are you like this, Jason? <laughs> and the reason is because throughout my life, as a kid, as soon as I was conscious of that I was a human being living in a society, grownups were constantly telling me things that didn't sound right. But, you know, <laughs> eventually, eventually they're like, well, you're just a, a dumb child and you don't know anything and we are the grown-ups, and we, you know, we're the people who hold power in society. So clearly, we know what we're doing. So just, you know, shut up, and and you'll you'll soon learn we were right. And in many many cases, no, they <laughs> they weren't they weren't right at all. For example, I'm gonna guess just about everyone listening here, as a teenager they were very difficult to get up in the morning to go to school around the time. Usually they hit middle school or whatever. It really did feel like I should still be asleep at this hour. Like this doesn't feel natural. And your parents yelled at you for being lazy and for sleeping in and you're not being motivated enough to, you know, to get up and you're, you're going to miss the bus and on and on. Yeah. Well, guess what? Science agrees. You were right. You should have been allowed to sleep in. Your body needs more sleep in those years. But our society, which insists on being based on a farmer schedule of the (laughs) earlier you get up, the better person you are. 
dragged you out of bed. So that is one, and we have a pile of data we're going to run through as quickly as we can, but that is one example of where the thing you kind of instinctively knew was true was true. They were wrong. The grownups were wrong. Your teachers were wrong. Right, especially because you were getting inputs from your own body that you were inside of. So, you know, maybe you're confused by them, but you at least are are getting the readings. Like, you know about it. Right, and instead we turned it into a morality test where if you are a good person, a good, hardworking person, then you get up early. But if you are a lazy slouch, you sleep in. And, of course, that means that you're, you're doomed to be unsuccessful because all of society starts functioning at like 6 a.m. for no reason at all. Right. <laughs> we have electric lights now. We can conduct business anytime we feel like it. And the whole concept that like everyone needs to be on the same schedule, not adapting to the fact that people have different circadian rhythms, things like that, you know, that there are hormonal changes that some people simply need more sleep than others, not because they're lazy, because they're bodies are different just as some people need to i don't know urinate more often than others because their bladder is smaller it's not a moral failing it's just people's bodies are different but boy right. i sure did not hear that stuff as a kid and now we realize this is a health crisis and also when you were describing that situation of back when we were in high school being told this, uh, there's probably some listeners who that's a present tense thing. They're that age and it's happening to them right now. But we've got one thing here. It's the 2011 National Sleep Foundation poll. uh, And they found that by the time U.S. students reach their senior year in high school, they're sleeping an average of 6.9 hours a night, uh, which is down from 8.4 hours when they were in the sixth grade. So it's the exact same people just as they go further into their their K through 12 education. Uh, there's more and more pressure to sleep less, even though uh, your body's forming throughout that time uh, and you should be getting rest so it can like grow properly and stuff. Yeah. And here's where like cranky adults will say the only reason they're having so much trouble getting up is because they were up late at night going out with their friends or, or playing their video games or on, on their their Instagram being an being an Instagram influencer uh, or yeah. whatever the, the kids do these days being <laughs> being a, a Fortnite Twitch streamer. Um, I think they either but, imagine gaming or they imagine that um, like like Hollywood high school movie party, which is just inexplicably at a mansion that the parents aren't checking on. It's one of those. <laughs> yeah, that the kid got to by crawling out of their second floor window. <laughs> right. Right. Because they, they live in a in, in a two-story house and they there's like a little roof there and then they can skid down on it and jump in their friend's car that well yeah. like if I had done that, like my parents would have called the cops. Like that is a good introduction to the pressure you're going to get on both ends because if you are a kid who just skips out on having a social life at that age, that also will harm your long-term life and job prospects and everything else. Going out and like learning to be friends with people and having a social circle, that's not wasting time. That's part of you learning how to be an adult. Like that's part of you yeah. learning how to function in groups and how to be have friends and how to have romantic partners like that's also something you need to learn how to do at 16 
So telling a kid, as we've been telling kids for 10,000 years, <laughs> no, at this age, you should only be learning how to do math and how to, to continue the farm after your mother and I have passed away at age 32. It's like, <laughs> well, no, that's never the reason 100% of kids have, you know, have been defying that advice for hundreds of generations is because they are going to do those things. They're going to adopt hobbies. They're trying to form their personality. There's a movement nationwide to like start school later. That we've got it somewhere here in yeah. our notes, and we can link to it. But this is a big deal because there's tons of data. Like all of the data is in this direction. That if you just start school like 90 minutes later, because some districts now start as early as 7 a.m. You know, if you start it just just push it back by an hour and a half, you get better performance. They they learn better. But it's like, well, I'll be damned if I'm going to let these kids stay up all night on their on their Snapchats, you know, because I certainly didn't get to sleep in at that age. Yeah. And after all, <laughs> if these hours were good enough for the farmers 800 years ago, why couldn't we keep doing it today? After all, why should we ever adapt society in any way? <laughs> right. <laughs> this, uh, yeah, this... Um thing we'll link here it's called the start school later movement which seems to be uh, somewhat informal but it's a group of lots of different educators scientists people who think that uh, we should just shift when school happens because uh, also we, we have a few things from other countries here uh, it's a stanford medicine article that looked at also kids in other countries and apparently the teenagers who are getting the most sleep are in australia and they think it's partly because schools start later in australia so teens there are getting about nine hours a night of sleep, which is fantastic. And then as far as the teens who are getting the least amount of sleep, the Stanford Medicine article says that South Korean adolescents uh, sleep an average of 4.9 hours per night, according to a 2012 study in the journal Sleep. They begin school between 7 and 8.30 a.m. Most of them have additional evening classes. And so that's they're, they're sort of the world leaders in sleeping the least. The article also says South Korean adolescents have a relatively high suicide rate of 10.7 suicides per 100,000 people a year. And they think that chronic sleep deprivation, which messes with your body a lot of ways, is probably part of why. That's part of what we're going to get into, because this obviously does not get any better once you're out of school and an and, and adult. But this is not a joke. Like Sleep deprivation screws you in every possible way. It affects yeah. your mental health, your physical health. It makes you worse at dealing with people. And that's part of what bugs me about the cultural attitude toward it as like this moral thing where we accept that sleep is good for you. We accept that you need it. But it's one of the few things in society where you would tell someone, well, no, that's that's too much. Like, even though your body wanted to stay asleep for another hour, we've decided that, that we're, we're, we're cutting it off, which yeah. is such a mixed message and such a, where people, and, and we'll get into this where like successful people wear it's like a badge of honor, how little they sleep. Like, I think there's people listening who would hear those hours and think, well, see, this is why South Koreans are getting ahead. It's because they're sleeping so little. And that's such a dangerous 
myth because we are this is one of those things where society has changed in a way that our biology has not kept up with and as far as impacts on our biology like you listening at home probably have a general sense that not sleeping messes with you the stanford medicines article describes the results of it as an inability to concentrate poor grades drowsy driving incidents anxiety depression thoughts of suicide and even suicide attempts uh, I feel like the driving thing is in particular underrated. Like every everybody has learned, especially the past few decades, how bad it is to drunk drive. But I feel like sleepy driving is extremely common. And that that's something nobody even really thinks about much. Yeah, and it is as dangerous as drunk driving because it has all of the same effects. If you have like one day basically of no sleep or very poor sleep, you're you're drunk. You're right. you're walking around drunk. But it's the type of thing where everyone will congratulate you for having done it, which is insane. But, you know, this is why you've you could get into like some of the regulations they've had to put into place around like the trucking industry requiring drivers to stop and sleep every so many miles because otherwise they would just go because they're trying to get, you know, get the trip yeah. over with as quickly as possible. But then you've got the thing with medical professionals and working 36 hour shifts. And so you've got a doctor who's looking over your chart and that doctor is so sleep deprived that the words just look like ants crawling over the page because <laughs> he or she has been up for so long. And it's like, gosh, these hardworking people, it's so great. Such, such driven professionals they are. Meanwhile, like the military uses sleep deprivation as a torture technique and the United Nations had to ban it, like had to tell <laughs> the American CIA to yeah. stop doing this because just keeping someone awake is a form of destroying them mentally and physically both. But when you're doing it to yourself, that means you're a hard charging, successful captain of, of industry. That pressure is real. We've got, cause not only are teens uh, not sleeping enough, but there's a article here from Esquire in the UK that describes uh, two thirds of adults worldwide as not getting enough sleep, two-thirds of all adults, that's a lot of people. And the CDC and the World Health Organization have declared it an epidemic. The article says that in Japan, where the epidemic is at its most absurd, the average time spent asleep is six hours and 22 minutes. And I guess the Japanese language also has go-to phrases to describe falling asleep in public, which is inamuri, and also the uh, act of dying from overworking, which is karoshi. So now you know some Japanese words for uh, just self-inflicted sleep problems. And uh, yeah, because America is not necessarily the worst at this. This is a worldwide epidemic, and it's a thing where the factors that play into it are present worldwide, where yeah. a lot of the hobbies and socializing occur late at night just for reasons that kind of make sense. It's That's when people are available to do them. But the whole culture of being the first one in the office and starting your day before anyone else is pervasive. And just this idea that this is what a good person does. We're not here to give health advice. This is not, we're not here to lecture you that you're not getting enough sleep. That's not the point. The point is that if you're not, that it's not, it's not your fault. This is you know, there's like 4 billion people in the world in, in your exact same circumstance because you have, you're getting it from all sides where if you go to sleep too early, then you're not seeing your friends and you're a nerd or you don't have any hobbies or you're, you're not an interesting person. But if you, you know, 
stay out too late or sleep in or whatever, then you're a lazy slob. So we just, we chop off sleep at both ends. And then when you're walking around sleep deprived, we write helpful articles about, well, you know, you're not getting enough sleep. Like, you know what this is, this is hurting you. And it's like, okay. Right. So person at home who you just worked overnight at the hospital as a nurse, and then you came home and had to take care of a two-year-old during the day before leaving for your second job. Like, Hey, did you know that's bad for you? Like, (laughs) like, did you know that lack of sleep is, is, is bad? It's like, Oh really? Thank you. Internet expert for the fact that I walk around all day feeling like I could die. Like I could literally just lay, just, just dig into a hole in the ground and die. You're saying that's bad that I shouldn't feel like that. Thank you for that, for that revelation. Right. (laughs) I had no idea my body was upset with what I'm doing. So it's a trap we set for people. That's in, so like the cultural, and that's the, the thing that bugs me more is a part that we've got the profile of the successful person who barely sleeps. This drives me up a wall. I'm glad you found this Esquire UK article because they reveal a thing that I didn't really know. Cause I don't know enough about all the British prime ministers, but apparently Margaret Thatcher was famous for sleeping less than five hours per night. It was seen as a way she was a success as a prime minister. Uh, She was followed by John Major, and he was seen as weak for sleeping more than that, among other reasons. And I would think it's just better to have a well-rested prime minister. And the article says that, you know, Thatcher got all this credit for staying up all night. But less is said, however, about Thatcher's final years plagued by minor strokes and dementia, so profound that she barely recognized her own family, end quote. And uh, it may not be quite an A to B, didn't sleep enough, ended up with neurological problems. But I I believe science says that contributes. Any kind of profile of a CEO or or of any kind of an innovator or whatever, they usually, like, I, I think Bill Gates claimed he slept only like three hours a night, something like that. It's rare that you read a profile of a successful person where they don't boast about how little they sleep. We pulled here just the last few presidents, including the current occupant. Bill Clinton barely slept five hours per night. Uh, According to a New York Times article, he was told by a professor at Georgetown that great men require less rest than normal people. And so he just decided he would act like a great man by not sleeping much. There's also very like glowing New York Times coverage of the way Obama spent his late nights And that he barely slept five hours per night because he just needed like alone time to read widely and be very thoughtful. And then Trump bragged to Bill O'Reilly about only sleeping four to five hours per night. He claimed, quote, I am working long hours, long hours and right up until 12 a.m. or 1 a.m. There's also other sources, uh, specifically the book Fire and Fury by Michael Wolff, which may or may not be accurate, where he claims Trump goes to bed at 6.30 p.m. whenever his schedule allows it which, if it's true, is a sign of a pretty serious sleep disorder. That's like a problem. And also sleeps in a room with three TVs in it and brings a cheeseburger to bed and a lot of stuff that might be crazy and not true. But either way, all three of those guys have pretty unhealthy sleep habits. Oddly, George W. Bush made a point of publicly letting everybody know that he got eight hours a night and and was very disciplined about it. But most of our presidents have been like, "Ah, I just got to be up all night working and thinking and reading. That's the way I am. And we should uh, be concerned about that because it makes them worse leaders. One of the reasons why it is hard to solve this problem 
is because there's no one thing. Like if you go out, if you are having trouble sleeping and if you go out on the internet looking for tips, you'll get stuff that doesn't seem that helpful. It's like, well, your room should be completely dark and you should uh, have no distractions and you should not do anything that like makes you think very much right before bed. It, it's, it's all things that where it's kind of like giving diet advice to someone where it's like, well, instead of eating a cheeseburger in your car, you should eat, eat a salad without dressing on it and, and a bowl of raw vegetables. It's like, yeah, you're, you're telling me the thing that needs to occur, but I kind of can't get there from here. Like yeah. it's like, there's a reason <laughs> I don't have all of those things. It's just not taking a lot of realities into account. Yeah. And like one thing we've mentioned here is that the effect of screens on your body, like when we talk about smartphones, obviously there's a fact that you now have a thing you can take to bed with you. That's even more convenient than, you know, taking your laptop to bed or when people used to have a TV in their bedroom or some people still do. There's an effect of just artificial light on your your body, like you, those rhythms and the hormones get jacked up by artificial lights because, again, humans did not evolve with artificial lights. Artificial lights are an extremely recent invention that are not like a candle, like the light that a screen you're holding six inches from your face blasts into your eyeballs and tricks your body into thinking it's it's daytime. Yeah, we've got a Salk Institute study uh, from 2018 that says certain cells in the eye process ambient light and reset our internal clocks. And so when those cells are exposed to the artificial light of screens late at night, our internal clocks get confused and that results in a host of health issues because, uh, right, we're used to like fire and the sun and so on. But screens are are too new for our bodies to know what's going on. And it's also something that there's not a ton of great research on because the way we use things changes so rapidly uh, you know again like having a screen that you that you use it the way you use it where it's right next to your face and you're doing it uninterrupted for many hours at a time that was different from how we used even televisions televisions used to be positioned across the room right if you were a kid yeah. and you went and sat with your face right up to the tv your parents would make you stop doing it they're like that's oh, going to ruin your eyes yeah, how about, I forgot about that. When you try to start solving the problem, it's a complicated thing to try to fix because everyone is different. And part of the thing that you're trying to fix may be simply the fact that your schedule doesn't match your work schedule. Like there may not be a lot you can do there. So then the international method of dealing with it is caffeine yeah which has been the you know civilization has been running off of caffeine for centuries i mean tea wars have been fought over tea like they the first time somebody made and brewed tea or before that i think they used to just chew on the leaves or whatever they're like oh yeah i i suddenly am not sleepy anymore and we've been using that to bridge the gap for a very long time but caffeine does not replace sleep. Caffeine does not give you energy. It dulls the receptors in your body that are supposed to be telling you how tired you are. <laughs> so it, it it's sort of like 
you know, if you have an infection and instead of treating the infection, you take a painkiller so the pain of the infection is not there. It's like you've not treated the thing. You just cut off your body's ability to detect it. Well, that's what caffeine does. It, it cuts off when your body starts screaming at you that you need sleep. The caffeine simply quiets. It's it's like you've got a check engine light in your car. You just put some electrical tape over the light. It's like, right. problem solved. <laughs> my, my engine is now fixed. So you have a case where in both directions, both to stay awake and to sleep at night, lots and lots of people self-medicate with something, but rarely are aware of how it works, how effective it is, how much they should be taking. I mean, if you pull the average person, like, ask how many milligrams of coffee or how many milligrams of caffeine do you get on an average day? They're going to, it'll be a blind guess. It's something yeah. they're taking as a drug because they know it affects them, but they're not stopping to think like most people are shocked to find out that Starbucks coffee has twice as much caffeine as Red Bull. Yeah. That was amazing uh, to learn that it's uh let's see here, 9.5 milligrams per ounce in a Red Bull and 19.58 milligrams per ounce in a Starbucks coffee, double. Yeah, or to put it another way, a can of Red Bull is like 80 milligrams, whereas a cup of Starbucks coffee is like 200. A medium cup is like 200. And then if you get like a Venti, it's like 320 milligrams. It's it's literally like four Red Bulls. And if you say, well, you've got 300 milligrams of caffeine, like that kind of sounds like a lot, is it? How much can you take before you die? Like <laughs> if I hand you a Red Bull and it's like, that's got 80 milligrams of caffeine in it, they may think that's a lot. And it's kind of not. It's part of what you're getting out of Red Bull is there's sugar and then a bunch of other ingredients that don't do anything as far as we know. Right. <laughs> but So it's a case where you're self-medicating. That's fine. We all do it. I, I mean, you're talking to someone. If anyone thinks I'm here as a health expert who who is asking you to live my healthy lifestyle, I I have ingested more caffeine than than most of you ever will. I it, there, there are a few people I could caffeine a lot of you under the table. I I have had two jobs continuously since I was in high school basically. So yes, I I am the king of sleeping for 5 hours a night for years at a time. But the way we do it and the way I do it, where you're kind of just drinking some caffeine until you're not sleepy anymore and you just keep ingesting it yeah, until you're not sleepy anymore without any thought to. And then you're tossing and turning that night. And there are some people who, you know, as they get older, will say, well, yeah, I know not to have coffee after like 6 p.m. It's like, okay, but do you have it down? Like, do you know how many milligrams of caffeine you can get at what time of the day before it ruins your sleep the following night? Because it works differently for different people and caffeine can stay in your system for days. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about two things right now. One of them is I can't remember the last time I taped one of these without making sure to have caffeine first. Uh, but also I'm thinking of like, even my doctor who, who is a medical professional who you think would be very exact uh, they just ask me, like, in general, how many cups of coffee do I have per day? And and they're just kind of eyeballing it like I am. Nobody's <laughs> nobody's like nailing this down. I don't think I'm not saying my doctor's doing a bad job. I think it's just how we all think about it. A lot of those people, those hard charging captains of industry who are both they only 
sleep three hours a night. I'm not directing this at any specific person or politician, but I'm telling you right now, a lot of those people, it ain't caffeine that they're using to stay up all night. <laughs> they, <laughs> they have graduated to other things that will keep them going and be able to stay up until midnight and then get up at literally at 3 a.m. to start looking at stock prices or whatever the hell they do. I think with also a lot of these, it's hard to nail down an exact single perpetrator of these things. But with sleep, the biggest thing might be that lionization of these hard charging people. And it's often like self lionization as I am Elon Musk because I never stop. Yeah. Or they're, it would not shock me at all to find out Donald Trump goes to sleep at like 6 PM and then wakes up at like three. Cause I have seen his tweets that he sent at three in the morning. Like he's up in the yeah. middle of the night. I don't think he's working is my thing. Right. Like <laughs> I think people overestimate how productive they are on that schedule is, is the key because oh, yeah. it's like, well, I was working that whole time. It's like, yeah, but the quality of your work, your ability to have ideas, your ability to be creative and then longevity. If the fact that when you turn, you know, if you're aging quickly, you hit 50 and all of a sudden it, this lifestyle hits you like a truck because you know, I'm 44. I'm telling you when the clock ticked over to 40, I suddenly became a very old man. It's <laughs> everything, everything about the schedule that I used to be very proud of in terms of I, cause I mentioned earlier, you know, working, always working multiple jobs and then writing a book on the side and all that stuff and, and working till two and 3 AM. Anyone who's worked with me at crack can confirm this, but like the day after my 40th birthday, I swear it was immediately like, Oh my God, I now feel, I don't drink. And I was like, I feel hungover. I got two hours less sleep last night than I should have. And instead of before where you like, I'd be kind of sluggish in the morning and then eventually get going. Now I feel like I have the flu. Now it's like I'm in <laughs> like physical pain. I'm telling you oh, the things you're doing in your twenties if you try to maintain that schedule for very long, at some point it will, it will hit you. There's no free energy. Like you're drawing from somewhere the night before you're drawing from the next day. And in your youth, you're drawing from your middle age. Like you will be hurting yourself in the long term, And that's where, you know, like you had earlier, the suicide statistics from some of the countries where, you know, there's so much pressure to not sleep and all that like depression, anxiety, all those things are made worse because you don't have the energy to like regulate your emotions. Like there's a reason you're in a horrible mood when you haven't slept. Yeah. So if you're continually in that state, it's changing your personality because it's like you get to a point where that's like, that's just who you are. You're just this cranky person all the time. And it's so widespread too. like that. Uh, back to that Esquire UK article, they said that a study found that almost half of British people were sleeping less than six hours per night now. And there was a previous similar study back in 1942. I also I don't know if they controlled for World War II's impact, but either way, uh, that study in 1942 found that under eight percent of British people were sleeping that little. Most people were getting more than six hours of sleep a night, which is still not quite enough, but it's at least like a foundation and and 
if you listen to this, just go out into the world and look at a group of people around you. Uh, a ton of them are feeling this uh, this tough way where they are just not topped up on the energy they need to to be who they want to be. Yeah, and that's the thing is when you look back at, at like previous generations, they were getting more sleep. Like we, like these were people who worked in factories and worked on farms and had what we think of as like harder jobs. But they also were getting more sleep. Like they weren't under the same pressure, you know, and we've not even gotten into like irregular work schedules. You know, the fact that there are so many businesses that operate overnight and we expect them to, we expect to be able to get an Uber at at two in the morning. We expect to be able to get a cab at two in the morning. We expect the pharmacy to be 24 hours, at least where I live now. I've, you know, you want to be able to go to a place in the middle of the night be able to, if you're driving someplace late, you want to be able to stop and get gas at 4 a.m. and assume there will be a 24. Well, those places all have to be monitored by human beings. You know, 24 hour technical support. Those are human beings. Those are people who are awake when they should be asleep. And if they were not there, you would be greatly annoyed because when we need tech support at four in the morning, we are not in the mood to hear. Well, no, it would be unhealthy to have our advisors stay up all night to help you. They're all at home right. with their families getting the good <laughs> night's sleep. It'd be like, no, I need someone's help. If I have to be up, everyone has to be up. <laughs> and so <laughs> I think it's relatively recent, too. Like, I remember being a kid and asking my parents why that business was called 7 Eleven because I didn't understand, like, why is that 24 hour convenience store called 7 Eleven? And it was because long, long ago, they were advertising that they were open that many hours, which was remarkable at the time. Yeah. Whereas now, like close to me, my grocery store is 24 hours. My Kroger, my Walmart is 24 hours. Yeah. Like you buy God, this is America. If I want to go out and buy ice cream and a carton of cigarettes and whatever, whatever else at at 3.30 a.m. in my pajamas, I fully expect a completely fully staffed store of smiling people to help me help me do that and would be shocked when it's not there. So it's, it's part of that getting the pressure from both ends because, all right, these are the jobs that are out there. But if you show up at somebody's house at two in the afternoon and bang on their door and they're angry because you woke them up, it'd be like, you were asleep at two in the afternoon. What are you, right. you unemployed? Are you are you on drugs? What are you, do you have a medical problem? It's like no, I got home from work at eight a.m. If you do the math, this is only six hours later. See, this is overnight for me, but it doesn't work that way. See, right. because during the day we expect you to be awake, even though we fully understand that huge parts of the economy function that all of the police officers and doctors and nurses that they're all working overnight, but we still will make loud noises during the day and we'll still run a jackhammer right outside your window and we'll still ring your doorbell to try to sell you something because it's during the day. Everyone is awake. Why? What kind of a lazy person would be asleep in the middle of the day? Yeah. (laughs) It's like, so when am I, when am I supposed to sleep then exactly? It's like never. You're supposed to keep working on behalf of other people until you just fall over and die. And then we will yell at you 
for being so irresponsible for your health and for not getting enough sleep because, see, that also is your fault. You have failed to get enough sleep due to your grossly irresponsible actions. I feel like maybe the solution is to uh, start giving ourselves and other people more latitude to get some sleep because it's such a combination of pressures keeping us up, I feel like. Like we're supposed to accomplish things professionally we're supposed to build a life personally we're supposed to you know help around the community and anything else we can think of we're supposed to have seen all the good shows read all the good books maybe the solution is to simply give everybody a broader latitude to be okay uh and maybe with a side of some labor rights where you don't have to work uh uh, terrible part-time jobs all the time instead the solution we have arrived at is that we will just kind of give lip service to it And then go right back to, because it's the same thing with diet. Like we will give lip service to, Hey, you need to watch, you know, what you eat. And then the other 99% of the time, you're just being bombarded with junk food commercials and TV shows where the people are all beautiful, but they also are eating terrible diets. And every, every message you get every other minute of the day is yes, you need to take care of your health. But also, wouldn't it be more fun to do this, like, which would be much more enjoyable than, than sleeping or, or, or working out or doing the things that will keep you alive? I feel, I feel like the most potent version of that messaging I get is watching sports on TV, because while they're showing the game, they'll lionize people for having the best conditioning and the hardest training and work toward that. And then every commercial break is cheeseburgers and beer, which are great. But it's like if I if I want to be like those heroes, I have to have less of the thing advertised in the breaks. It's very difficult. Right. But see, that goes down a whole other path, which is tying this into masculinity. Yeah, because that that is that is man (laughs) food. That is a cheeseburger like that is what a man orders when he goes to a restaurant. It's a it's a fifteen hundred calorie cheeseburger and a beer with three hundred calories in it and four hundred calories worth of fries yeah. And that's, if you're a real man, that's how you eat. Granted, you know, those athletes don't eat like that. And the ones that do are the ones that, that die when they're 45. Like, you know, these days, these guys now have full-time nutritionists. You know, everything is monitored because they're investing in their bodies and they're, they have to. Like, this is, that's not an option. But that's the push and pull because staying up late, that's also a manly thing to do. And being up early, you know, just like the farmers of old, like that's also, (laughs) you know, you're, I'm not saying women don't have their own pressures here. And in fact, we've come this far without mentioning having a baby and what having a baby does to your sleep and how your work will not accommodate that. So you've been up all night with the baby and guess what? If you call into the office too many days in a row saying, I can't come in. The baby was up all night. They'll simply fire you <laughs> because yeah. that is not considered a legitimate reason to not be at work. And your boss will say something like I have five children and by God, I worked, got up and started my own company because that's yeah. what our heroes do. And and it's not saying I need sleep as a biological necessity. And I'm going to ask you to change your plans around my biological necessity. We'll do that with almost anything but sleep. We would like to thank Squarespace for their support of the cracked podcast, but 
hey, we don't even need to thank them because they're making out great on this whole deal. You know what I mean? Because they get to spread their message and spread their service to cracked podcast listeners, the finest folks on the internet, I say. And uh, if you folks don't have a website already, guess what? Squarespace can help you with every step of it. You can go from the nothing you currently possess online to an entire fully functional website that is exactly what you want it to be and impresses everybody who sees it. Squarespace has beautiful templates created by world-class designers that you can customize any way you want. They have e-commerce functionality to help you sell stuff. Their sites are optimized for mobile right out of the box so they don't look weird on phones and tablets. They'll look great. Also, they make buying domains very simple. You want to have a domain that's easy to tell people interpersonally. That's probably the most uh, literally word of mouth aspect of the internet is having a URL that's easy to say. I work for cracked.com. It's very easy to say. You should have a URL that is that easy. But you can't have that one. We took it. Anyway, I'm sure you'll get an even better one because you're great and Squarespace empowers millions of people like you to turn great ideas into something real. So head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash cracked, offer code cracked. Whether you need textbook solutions or expert Q&A, there is no better tool to help you ace your class than Chegg Study. Do you need expert help right away? You can simply use the Chegg Study app to snap a quick picture of problems not covered in your textbook. Then you submit it to Chegg's experts and get a response back in as little as two hours. Or tap into Chegg's massive library of step-by-step textbook solutions, video walkthroughs, and practice sets. You can study at home on your desktop or on the go with the Chegg Study mobile app. Subscriptions are affordably priced and can be canceled at any time. And you, uh, you may not know this about me, but I went to college. I also had two majors and one minor when I was in college, so I was wearing a lot of different hats. Uh, also, the minor was playwriting, so it was a very artful kind of hat, like a beret or something. Just kidding, I would never wear a beret, but you get it. And I found myself constantly turning to every person or resource I could find, and it was pretty laborious anytime I needed just help through that next concept or that next hurdle that would let me continue barreling forward and learning uh, the things I needed to learn and also, quite frankly, wanted to learn. I got to study a lot of things I was really excited about, like history and TV writing. If you know me, you know I love that stuff. It's amazing to me that Chegg can make that as easy as having a phone and just having the wherewithal to get their service and use it. And I, I can't recommend giving yourself that resource enough. And speaking of giving yourself that resource, for $5 off your first month subscription, go to Chegg, that's C-H-E-G-G, Chegg.com slash cracked, and use promo code cracked, that's Chegg, C-H-E-G-G, Chegg.com slash cracked, and use promo code cracked for $5 off your first month's subscription. One thing to repeat that I'll keep brief, the Cracked podcast is going on its first ever tour, April 11th in Chicago, April 12th in St. Paul, Minnesota. Links to get tickets are in the footnotes, and if you click on them and buy tickets, you'll be excited to have them. It's how it works. Well, and, and also off of the, the, the man things we were talking about before, one of them is being able to drink a whole bunch of alcohol. And uh, you picked out in the column and elsewhere how alcohol is an extremely casual and common thing in society that uh, I don't think you and I are trying to like Elliot Ness prohibit and break open all the barrels of, but also no one's kind of recognizing the consequences of it. Well, and that's 
the worst thing that prohibition did because you can't now talk about it as a public health problem without coming off like you want to outlaw it. Right. But there's a whole range of conversations we can have in between, hey, this is perfectly healthy and everyone who does this should be thrown in prison. (laughs) We should be able to discuss this. And we have, you know, in America, endless talk about the opioid crisis and prior to that about the crack cocaine crisis and the overdoses and on and on. Nothing compares to what alcohol kills. Nothing. There is hardly a disease in the world that compares to what alcohol, the the devastation alcohol does worldwide. We've got numbers here you can go through that are stunning. And it's all completely invisible because we cannot talk about alcohol as a devastating public health crisis without sounding like we are the temperance movement in the, yeah, the 19 in the teens who successfully got alcohol banned. Like these people had a bunch of data behind them. Like there's a reason that movement kind of swept the world. It's just that we quickly learned that you can't just make people stop drinking by law. But good God, we should be talking about this more because the the statistics are incredible. And that movement, that temperance movement, like it's so long ago, A, it's hard to remember the name of it. And B, in my mind, it's it's black and white pictures. It's not it's not even in color. You know, it, it's people in big, funny dresses and outfits carrying signs around like a 1920s city. And maybe that's kind of the last time we tried to slow down alcohol as a thing. But not only, as you say, is it like a public health crisis just being a thing, it's also particularly bad the last few years. We've got a thing here where they did two surveys, one in 2001 and two, and the other in 2012-13 uh, that studied tens of thousands of Americans and found that there was an 11% rise in people who'd had a drink in the last 12 months, a 30% rise in high-risk drinking, and overall just rates of alcoholism in the United States have shot up almost 50% in just 11 years. Like We've had alcohol for a long time, but particularly lately, it's been an acute issue. Yeah, and it is much, much more serious than the opioid crisis, much more serious than heroin. The number of people who are affected by it, the number of people who die, because again, you've got a lot of it is you know car accidents, that sort of thing. This is an epidemic that no one's completely sure why suddenly it is skyrocketing. I know that it it has hit women very hard. I know that wine consumption has exploded, but for whatever reason, due to just it, maybe it's, you know, going back to the financial crisis in 2008, just rise in general anxiety levels, because this is something we've done previous podcasts on suicide rates are going up. Depression, anxiety, these things are increasing. People are self-medicating with alcohol. But we, the CDC has mentioned that like excessive alcohol use kills about 90,000 people a year, or at least in the last years we have data yeah. for. And in just the United States, I think. Yeah, excessive drinking is responsible for about 1 in 10 deaths among adults. 
worldwide it kills about three million people per year yeah it's yeah (laughs) per year if there was a new disease that came on the scene like some like ebola or something that killed half that many people (laughs) that killed 1.5 million people that killed you know 50,000 people in the united states we would be freaking out and i know this because I'm old enough to remember the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s when this was all we talked about, when they were sure that the AIDS, that you know, HIV would be an apocalypse, that it was spreading so fast that it was actually going to just sweep through the world like wildfire and they were desperate to find a cure. And AIDS did never killed a tiny fraction of this number. But because it's alcohol and because everyone drinks, a little bit. And because we saw the disaster that was prohibition, like no one seems to care. Like you'll, you'll see an article about, Oh, there's an increase in alcoholism, alcoholism. And you know, and there's, we, it's become worse in like poorer areas of the country. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's too bad. But I don't see anyone talking about like fundamentally changing the way we think about alcohol or fundamentally trying to, discourage people from drinking the way we did do with smoking cigarettes. You know, like we've got the rates of smoking all the way down to like 15% of people smoke, but yeah, that's a big change in terms of, yeah, like we successfully started like kind of shaming people for it and saying, Hey, that's really bad for you. The thought of doing that with alcohol is unthinkable. Like we, love alcohol (laughs) like like culturally we are so dedicated to it and it is so fundamental to how we celebrate how we relax how we do everything that it's it's so entrenched that to me it's weird because i'm i'm a non-drinker i i I always have been and, and the sheer enthusiasm people have for alcohol it was almost always seemed almost religious to me yeah, especially I I was reading something about small towns in the U.S. and ways they're trying to like grow or come back if they're down. And one of the primary ones is that anyone can start a brewery. It, anyone can just put that together. And anywhere I've lived, people are always ex- seemingly most excited about somebody opened a brewery or a beer garden or, uh, you know, finally we have a thing to do in this city. And there's all kinds of things to be doing. We don't have to build it around beer, which I very much enjoy. Like I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not telling people to stop. Cause I, I don't think I will, but I, I do try to be careful about it. And, and I think in general, we don't consider the impact of that. Yeah. Well, right. And I'm, I'm sure it's all not going to give up caffeine. <laughs> like, yeah. Because we can't talk about it without it's coming off. Like we're trying to kill everyone's fun. You can't mention something like the fact that wine consumption has gone up 60% plus over just the last 20 years. This, you know, you can go in a grocery store now and they have shelves after shelves of, of wine and cheap wine. And a lot of it's aimed at women. And if you go to a store that sells clothing for women, you will see entire racks of t-shirts and clothes talking about how much they love to drink wine. Like it's wine o'clock and I yeah. love my children, but I love wine more. And it's this weird cultural thing that you can't complain about it without sounding like you're just being a spoil sport or a moral scold because it's wine. 
it's fun. Who doesn't love wine? And meanwhile, you're seeing like life expectancy of women declining due to liver problems and, and all sorts of ancillary side effects from alcoholism. Like it is a legitimate ep- epidemic, but it's like, oh, so you want to ban the wine? I want culturally for people to realize this is a problem. It's a health issue. It's a, We've also got stuff here about the economic issue. The CDC says that the economic costs of excessive alcohol consumption in 2010 were estimated at $249 billion in the U.S., which comes out to $2.05 per drink people had. There's a university study from Thailand that says alcohol may be draining more than half a trillion dollars from the global economy every year due to a range of effects it has on people. And whether you want to be worried about people's health or money or, or anything else, it's like it's such an enormous impact on society but it's something that we just put on, like you say, funny T-shirts. You found you found this one where the T-shirt just says, holy shit, I heart wine. That's the entire message. That's not even good. They didn't even try. It's yeah. <laughs> just a signifier that, hey, I drink wine and we all agree that wine is good. And after all, you can't die from drinking wine. It's in a fancy glass. It's not like some guy, you know, drinking from a flask at, at work. You know, it's wine. It's We're all going to go out after work and all go have wine somewhere. And it's fancy. And it's certainly not destroying our bodies and minds in any way. When you brought all this up, I also thought of the Today Show, or at least the part where it's Hoda Kotb and Kathy Lee Gifford hosting it. and. They each just have a massive goblet of wine in front of them and are drinking it at, yeah. I, I believe, 11 a.m. And again, I don't I don't need to, like, break a bunch of barrels in 1920s Chicago. I just think it's weird that we're all, like, watching them do that in the morning every morning. There's a thing that can happen where sometimes you can go buy a self-help book or listen to, like, a self-help video or something, and then they wait till, like, 45 minutes into it to say... And the only cure is the love <laughs> of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You, yeah. For people new to the podcast, this was not a stealth thing where we were trying to slip into, like, well, what you need is prayer. For instance, where everyone thinks wine is uh, adorable, if the hosts of the Today Show were to openly drop some acid while doing the show... <laughs> That would actually make headlines if they were to do mushrooms. That's more like something like an edgy vice segment would do versus these people, this thing that your mother and grandmother watch. But (laughs) it would be objectively less harmful to do the shrooms scientifically, right? Like there are severe mental health effects that come from doing marijuana for, for too early. Like this is why you shouldn't do it for age 17, 18, like it can have severe on a developing brain. It can be very hard on you. Alcohol. We've just talked about. It's devastating. Mushrooms. They can find no evidence that there's any negative effects. LSD. Same thing. They can't find any evidence that there's long-term like it's like anything else. There are certain individuals who may be sensitive to it, but in terms of on the range of drugs, you could catch someone doing that's about the best ones like in terms of long-term effects on your on your body yeah we're drawing on 
a range of things here. There's a Norwegian university study in the Journal of Psychopharmacology that found, if anything, a correlation between using psychedelic drugs and a decreased risk for mental health problems. They found no solid evidence of negative effects. They just kind of said there might be some we missed. And then uh, as far as mushrooms go, the Global Drug Survey in 2017, uh, which had almost 120,000 participants in 50 countries, found that mushrooms are pretty much safe as long as you don't like pick a poison mushroom in the woods. And then they found that they're really only particularly dangerous if you put yourself in an unfamiliar situation or if you mix them with a drug called alcohol. Again, I don't need everyone to go take psychedelic drugs. I don't care for you to do that. But it seems to be oddly something that maybe should have less stigma than the things we're putting on T-shirts and drinking on the Today Show. Right. And that's all. That's the only point is that as a culture, we assign stigma to all the wrong things and we cheerlead all the wrong things. And so there's things that we would shame someone for that actually are very healthy. And, you know, it's like taking if you took mushrooms and then slept for nine hours, no one thinks that's admirable. But but if you sleep for three hours, work a 12-hour shift, and then get drunk with the boys after work, that's a hard-charging man's man. Right. <laughs> where in reality, it's like, no, that, that second person is slowly killing himself. But in almost all of these cases, whether we're talking about acid or alcohol or briefly mentioned marijuana, it's all people self-medicating something. And every single one of these cases, you're self-medicating Without having an education in dosage and frequency and how it interacts with the other things you're taking. If you're taking an antibiotic, does that interact with alcohol or with caffeine? Or you've got this cocktail of various things you're putting into your body that you don't necessarily know the effect. Because if you ingest something, it takes a while for it to take effect. So it's not like you can just, it's not like filling up a glass with water where you can just put enough in there. It's like, Oh, okay. I'm, I'm full now. I have enough, (laughs) I have enough THC in my system now because, and that's the same thing. Like people who are really pro weed will quote study after study saying, Hey, this lab found that in certain amounts, you know, THC can reduce anxiety. It's like, well, okay. In other amounts, it seems to increase anxiety. And there's interactions with alcohol and other things you're taking at the same time. And it has to do with your body weight and your diet. And everyone reacts a little bit differently because every brain is different. If you're making the case that this active ingredient is medicine and that you need it to treat your whatever, some people use it to loop back. Some people use it to treat insomnia saying that it helps them sleep. We have no idea if that actually works, but even if it does, what dosage helps you sleep? When should you do it? How much, how much TAC are you getting in a joint? Do you know, do you know how much you need? And if you say, well, I've been smoking for years, I have a good sense of how much I can do. Well, okay, that's fine. But you, your body changes over time. Your habits change. All of these things you're doing to try to regulate your moods and to try to regulate how you feel, in almost every case, there would be a better way to do it. For instance, if you are drinking because it's like, well, I'm nervous at parties 
and drinking dulls my, you know, it lowers my inhibitions and I can talk to people, which I think is the vast, the biggest reason people do drink. It's like, it just, you know, it lets me get out of myself and I kind of, it calms me down and then we, I, I can have fun. Well, in a perfect world, you would find out what in your personality prevents you from doing that normally and take it on. Like you would find out why you have these inhibitions. You would find out why you're so uncomfortable talking to strangers or whatever and work on it so that you don't need like a, the supplement to help you do it. And maybe again, I guess that's unrealistic, but my point is that we self-medicate in so many ways and have so little information about side effects. So when the side effects hit you, people don't connect it to the other things they're doing. For example, people will not connect their anxiety to their lack of sleep. Huh. Yeah. They think their anxiety is just due to their, their life circumstances. It's like, well, yeah, but you're also only sleeping five hours a night. And we know for a fact that that too little sleep plus caffeine to correct that raises your anxiety levels. Because you don't have like a, a health coach walking you through these things and you don't go to the doctor because you don't have health insurance until you're almost dead. Right. You don't have anyone to say, okay, give me the total package of what you eat and drink in a day. And let's be honest, most of us will not go to our doctor and say, I smoke marijuana twice a week. Talk to me about that. Because they're, they're afraid the doctor is just going to scold them like, well, you shouldn't be doing it's that's against the law in this state and it's bad for you. You shouldn't do that. Like to have a doctor who will say, okay, how much are you getting? What are side, what are you trying to treat with this? What are the side effects you see? Here's my advice. Like, I think you should try edibles instead. Like, I don't know if, if that cool doctor is out there. I'm also imagining the patient like admits they smoke. The doctor's like, sure, man, I do too. And then the patient judges the doctor, you know, because this is so exactly. baked into yeah. us. They're like, oh, this probably isn't a good doctor. It's probably I'm high right, right now. now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's ultimately the point we're trying to get at with this, this episode is that the messaging you get about how you should be managing your health comes almost universally from people who are talking out of their ass. You do yeah. not... There is so much bad information out there and so much snake oil where someone is happy to say, well, this herbal supplement will help you sleep. Therefore, because you're taking this, you don't need to do anything else. Or you can go to the doctor and get sleeping pills. And it may be that you're taking sleeping pills to counteract caffeine, like to counteract sleeplessness that you inflicted on yourself. So you have a whole world that's trying to like force you to live in a very unhealthy way. And it is extremely difficult to get good, clear advice because we all have unhealthy things. We're not going to give up. That's the thing is advice that is too strict is also useless. It's like, well, you should sleep nine hours a night and then only eat vegetables during the day. You need someone to be able to say, okay, here's what a modern life looks like. And here's the stuff that seems harmless, but is killing you. And then here's the stuff that you're scared of that is actually pretty harmless. It seems like it's key to find the right information to support that. 
because also I feel like as as people look at how we can solve these things for ourselves or other people, I feel like it's good news that there's there's more than one way to go about it. For one thing, uh, we can like legislate support for things like when we were talking about you can't call out of work sick because you didn't sleep because of your baby. We could be legislating more support for working parents, you know, the, uh, those kinds of things we can put money toward fixing. But also there's the solution of trying to just get yourself better information or cut yourself some slack or, or put yourself in a generally better mindset about how this stuff works for you. Like you mentioned earlier, we aren't going to go all the way to the end of this and then say, and the solution is prayer or uh, or and the solution is like militant libertarianism that's kind of sexist like certain corners of the internet it's just just work on yourself and and try to find advice from people who aren't trying to sell you an ideology or a, or some kind of weird herbal supplement or something yeah because there is generally data out there yeah like whatever you want to try like if you are getting into meditation or something like that there's data out there about how well it works or doesn't work about when you should do it. Same thing with for something like yoga. They've studied it. You know, they can tell you uh, like, you know, it, someone of your, of a certain age or whatever health issues you have, like, would this be good for you? Does it in studies, does it seem to make a difference? And then there's a whole wonderful world of placebos out there that, <laughs> <laughs> that uh, people will be happy to sell you. And guess what? Some of them work really well because a lot of times if you take something that you think is going to help you sleep, it will because the brain yeah. is weird and, and it's it, all you, your brain needed permission to shut down by taking something it thought was a sleep supplement or whatever. But generally there's not really a reason to remain ignorant about things. There's things we don't want to know. We don't want to hear um, <laughs> that our favorite thing is is terrible for us. But generally, whatever problem you're having, you can usually find out like, well, is it a combination of what I'm eating or what I'm because we could I mean, good God, if we got into stuff with diet, like the effect sugar has on your system and has on your heart and has on your brain and has on all sorts of things. And has on how you feel during the day and how what you eat, the effect it has on how sluggish you feel or whatever. You could do an entire series on that. You could do a weekly show on just the stuff you're eating and how it, it screws you up. But again, people also eat to self-medicate. I know I do when I'm, yeah, when, I when I'm feeling a certain way, yeah, there's that's when I want junk food. It's because I've had a bad day. I do not have any information in my brain of like, okay, well, how many grams of fat do I need to improve my mood right now? How many French fries will will make this bad day go away? I just kind of keep eating them until they're gone. Well, also, I mean, we do have some stuff about people's diets, and and you found a number of things that. Uh, would maybe just be surprising, like, for instance, that they've done studies of GMOs, for one thing, that people are very concerned about. Uh, they've been studied exhaustively for decades. People can't really find anything wrong with eating genetically modified food. And then also in terms of the amounts we eat, there were there are laws in some places that put calorie counts on the menu. 2014 NYU study found that that 
doesn't really change people's purchasing habits or eating habits. Also, a study in the journal Physiology and Behavior in 2016 found that portion sizes don't really impact obesity rates places. Like there are a lot of just sort of perceived wisdoms about how we approach eating that are maybe not true. Yes. Everything we think we know about diet is wrong. You pick out that in particular with the obesity epidemic, it only goes back to about 1980 in the U.S. Like uh, some of these food issues like that are relatively new. And then as far as the broader impacts of uh, some of the particularly powerfully engineered snack foods we have and things, I feel like a lot of the food stuff is newer than people would think just because we've had food in general forever. And we also get lured into thinking that it's always been like this. Like that's part of it. Is it, especially for young people listening, a lot of this isn't normal. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of what you see going around you, the amount of, of wine that your mother drinks, that wasn't true just 40 years ago. It's, you know, it wasn't true in the course of my lifetime. Like my birth predates the obesity epidemic. Like this wasn't a thing that happened until later in, in my life. Like people have always dieted. People have always worried about, or in the modern era when then people are considered sexy. Like that's always been a thing, but in terms of what they're talking about today, where it's an epidemic, where diabetes is an epidemic that's recent, yeah. you know, and while alcohol has been around for as long as civilization, what we're talking about is an epidemic. And while I'm sure there have always been tired people who had to get up earlier than they wanted to do work, the modern sleep deprivation crisis, that's new. That's an epidemic. It's a new thing. And most of what we've discussed today, these are recent yeah. changes in the culture, which means that they're not inevitable. They're not baked into the human biology or human society. They're due to changes that have occurred very recently. Yeah, even when we compared that waking up early sleep cycle to farmers, like, as I understand it, the farmers still rested. Like, they, they did the actual thing that Ben Franklin described, where they woke early but also went to bed early and got a decent amount of sleep. There was nothing to do late at night. They yeah, had no lights. Yeah. <laughs> it was dark and there was no television. And so you're just sitting there in a quiet room staring at your family. <laughs> and then, yeah. And you're also, you're exhausted because you've been freaking working on a farm all day. Yeah. You would, you would eat dinner and then you would go to bed and the schedule centuries ago, people used to sleep in like two stretches. They would sleep for like four hours and wake up for like two hours and like get a snack or something. They'd go back to sleep. They used to be considered normal. You know, everything about the schedule, the way the grownups told you when you were a kid, this is the way we have to do it because this is how good hardworking people do it. Um, mostly, yeah, again, they just pulled that out of their ass. They, they did it because someone else told them they had to do it. But these are things like the resistance to like starting school later legitimately makes me angry because there is a lot of data like kids lives are saved. If you let them sleep a little bit more, their mental health is better, but there's this obstinate thing where it's like, well, no, this is not the way we do it. This is, you know, why yeah. should they get to sleep? And I certainly didn't get to it's like. It's the same reason you're you're going to keep like mushrooms illegal or hallucinogenic mushrooms or, or anything like that. Cause it's like, well, that's what the scary hippies do. And it makes you all weird. 
it's like, okay, and alcohol makes you beat the crap out of your family. I would prefer right. somebody sit around and trip, trip out than do what you're doing that you consider normal and good and fun that, you know, led your grandfather to die in his fifties because his liver exploded and burst into flame. It's like, we've got the perfect stew of old bad habits and new bad habits that we can't introduce new good habits. Like, like why, why, why can't, why, why isn't there like a new modern movement against wine? Why aren't there people out there saying, Hey, this is, this is bad for you. This is going to make you feel worse in the long term. Yeah, I feel, I feel like if there is any pressure going on, it's that kind of old saw of millennials are lazy and, and ruining specific things, which which, if anything, is just this intergenerational hazing, because in particular, millennials are mostly a working very hard. B, a lot of the work may feel futile because it's like constant searching for a job or constant searching for some way forward after college. And then also they're they're facing at least a perceived situation where they have less of a social safety net and societal structure to be there for them in their in their later years. So there's a, like a lot of pressures on them already that they are working very hard to deal with, but they're just told, hey, you're not working hard enough. And then they sleep less, self-medicate more and, and all these other things. It's like the concept of moderation is what we can't tolerate. Like moderating anything, moderating the amount of work you're doing, moderating saying to someone who smokes marijuana, like maybe you don't quit, but maybe cut down a little bit. Like, like maybe wine is not sinful, but maybe think about like which days you're drinking it or, or you regulate it to like a specific time of day. It's like, that's the one thing no one ever wants to hear. And that's why everyone immediately jumps to prohibition. Like, oh, you, you want to make it illegal. You want to put us in jail for smoking this or you want to do. And it's like, I don't want to do anything like that. I, I want people to think in terms of what makes you feel good right this very moment is going to make you feel like crap tomorrow. And then because you feel like crap tomorrow, you're going to self-medicate with something that makes you feel good in the moment. And it shouldn't come across as we're like a moralistic scold, like wagging your finger at somebody like, ah, oh, you're drinking too much or you're smoking too much of the reefer. And it's like, man, this is about how you feel like this is about, this isn't about trying to obey my rules. This isn't about trying to obey the preacher's rules. This is about how you feel long-term, not right yeah. now, but how it's going to make you feel tomorrow. And this, this culture and capitalism and the system of like constantly trying to sell you on the stuff that feels good in the moment or tastes good in the moment, it's not about it being morally wrong. It's about the fact that there's a reason why you feel like crap all the time. There's a reason why everyone you know is anxious, why everyone you know is depressed, why everyone you know says they feel like crap. And it's not necessarily that the world has gotten worse. It's that the world has changed in a way that it makes it extremely difficult to be healthy. That phrase like of feel like crap that we've used, like why you feel like crap. I feel like as we look at that phrase, it's a pretty good indicator in its way of, of how working out why you're feeling this way. It may be complex and you should give yourself some like time to figure it out. Cause even the way we describe it as feel like crap, 
is very inexact. Like it's it's a simile related to feces, and and it's not like this kind of thing can be hard to diagnose and exactly work out. So so give yourself some time and and some uh, low pressure to to figure it out because it's it's a very vague feeling for a lot of people who have it, and it's something you can explore. It's also something where having to monitor it people sense like that will just add to their anxiety because you're giving them something else to worry about. Like the whole deal is with, I mentioned the comfort food earlier and not like counting how many calories I was eating in order to get over my bad day. Their whole deal is like, that's why I'm doing it. I don't want to have to count the calories. That's, that's the release is in that moment. I don't want to have to worry about it. And that's, that's very reasonable, but you have to understand your anxiety over having to think about it, that's a measurable biological scientific thing. There's a cognitive load that your brain is trying to handle. And you have things in your life that it's struggling to keep up with. The fact that you feel like you don't have any brain energy left to dedicate to carefully planning a diet or to holding yourself to a sleep schedule because you, you know, the whole deal is I, you know, my evenings are, that's my time to myself. I don't want to have to make myself go to bed at, at 1030. I, I, I just want to relax and, and play a game or something. You have to understand those are habits that are also something you are biologically responding to your fear of having to think about these things is one of the symptoms. Yeah, because your brain is so tied up with all of these other things. And so, for example, we've done pre previous episodes on social media and on Twitter and about how those things raise your anxiety because you're reading obsessively. You're trying to follow a bunch of emotionally draining stories. You're trying to hop from subject to subject to subject as you're reading things. A lot of it is upsetting. The fact that that adds to your feeling of exhaustion later is something most people don't think of because they don't they don't sense that you're devoting a cognitive load to managing the social media stuff either posting on it staying on top of it just reading it just reading a bunch of trivia all day you've still asked your brain to process all that information so then the yeah. feeling of mental exhaustion you feel when someone says hey you need to think about blank You need to think about your finances. You need to think about your retirement. (laughs) The groan that you let out when someone asks you to think about something that you don't want to think about and the way your brain just rebels, it's like, no, I am out of attention today. I can't worry about this. That's one of the symptoms because you have exhausted that attention on other things. Not, it's not your fault. This society bombards you with things all day long, but it elevates your anxiety and, and anxiety is a measurable thing. It's a result of certain hormones and cortisol and adrenaline in your bloodstream. It's not an ailment of the soul. It's not a spiritual thing. It is a measurable biological response to things that are going on around you. Everything you do, everything you read, everything you're doing on your phone, it all affects it. So if you 
feel what we're saying, feeling like crap. If you feel like you're exhausted all the time, if, or if you feel like you're anxious all the time or both, which is what a lot of people have, you know, these days we have a habit of self-diagnosing. We have a habit of just telling someone we're depressed of telling someone we have anxiety, even though we've never had a doctor tell us that because what we really mean is I'm exhausted and it hurts to think about things. Like I can't, I can't make myself, I can't work up any energy to do the things I know I need to do. There are usually physical reasons for that that can be addressed, that can be changed. And not even necessarily with medication, like a lot of the intervention people need isn't that severe, but just getting enough sleep. If you are chronically sleep deprived and something changes with your schedule where you're suddenly getting enough sleep on a regular schedule, you will feel like a different human being for the most part. Like there, there are trade-offs that you can make. If you knew what they would do for you, I think you would already have done it. But I think most people don't realize why they feel the way they feel. Yeah. And and also because we don't want to do that double messaging thing. If you can't make that change immediately or right away, it's okay, man. Like, yeah, it takes time and, and a little planning and energy. It's cool. Yeah. I guess my, my big takeaway, the, the the conclusion would be don't let yourself get pushed into unhealthy habits. Like, look, I get it. it. Somebody's working their way through school. They're, they're in class. They're doing homework. They're doing a part-time job. Like I get it. That's going to be a sleep deprived schedule and society is not going to adjust to you, but there are places in the margins where you can practice self care. That isn't necessarily a new agey thing about going to a spa or whatever people mean when they say that where it could just be saying, no, look, I'm telling you I need to sleep instead of doing the thing you want me to do. Like I'm, I'm going to intentionally make a choice here because I recognize that I need it. The pressure is usually all in the other, in the opposite direction. And people who do not drink alcohol depending on who your friends are, depending on your social circle, you may be under tremendous pressure to drink. Um, not because they're going to like try to pour it down your throat, but because you'll feel like you're not being as much fun as you should be. Or you feel like the everyone will tell you how much more fun you are when you drink. You don't have to succumb to that. If you're not comfortable with it, you can, you can instead say, well, all right, why, how am I different when I drink? You know, it, it, I, I talk more. Okay, why don't I do that when I'm sober? And and attack it from that direction rather than feeling like I'm ruining the party unless I drink. There's a there's a times when you can push back on habits that you know deep down are not good for you, even if and this is crucial, even if other people seem to be doing fine doing the same thing. Because there will always be that person who insists, you know, they can get drunk the night before and just get up at five the next morning and go uh, do their their job as as president of the United States. <laughs> and you will feel like if you can't do that, then that must mean you're not as strong as they are. You're not as cool as they are. And that is not the case. Do not envy the person who is only who is able to get by on four hours of sleep a night. 
they're different. They, they, their body is different or they're lying. As we suspect, some of our presidents have been liars. Um, (laughs) In America, the people who, the people who can drink and never get addicted to it. The people who smoke weed and never, it never gets interferes with their life. That may not be you. And because you can't handle the stuff they can handle, it doesn't mean that you're weak. It's not doing you're, you weren't tough enough to hold your liquor like this badass could. Everyone is different. Everyone has different needs. And the people who are able to do the seemingly unhealthy things and get by with it, the thin person who seems to eat a terrible diet, they're making it up elsewhere somehow. But you don't have to hold yourself to some standard the society holds you to. If you have to like look for a different job because the one you've got just doesn't let you have a normal sleep schedule, like being able to sleep and having a healthy body and not feeling like crap every day, that is a form of wealth on its own. And again, that's something that we just don't. If you ever told your parents, well, I quit this job because I wanted to sleep instead, most of the time they will not, they will not see that as an admirable thing, but that's part of what is the, I would say the sickness of this culture, because it is a sickness that, that if you in 2019, you have a series of cultural values that say, stay up all night, work all day drink or do some sort of drug in your spare time, that that's what a cool person does. That's a lie. (laughs) That is, that is a destructive lie that you've been told. And it's okay to rebel against that. Even if rebellion comes in the form of going to bed at 8 PM, like that is in in this world, that is the most rebellious thing you can do. And it's such a comfy rebellion. I love it. Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Jason Pargin for digging so deep on so many things our bodies do. True digging. We have the receipts in our footnotes where you will find Jason's epic two-part column on health myths and mistakes that we all make casually, that we're often led to make. Those columns and the additional footnotes are packed with tons of citations of studies. They're things you may not have known about from the most reputable possible sources we could find. I think very few writers on the internet are putting Jason's level of elbow grease into examining this kind of stuff. He's like, he's like an anti-goop. You know what I mean? Like, like, like if there was a, an opposite of Gwyneth, like in a mirror universe, it's him and it's great. Also an extra footnote in there that I just like, uh, because we were talking about kind of the cognitive load at one point later in the show of just keeping up with all of the stimulus and input from the entire world. And this is a fake editorial from the website ClickHole that I just love. The title of it is, I am the new person you have to know about now. And it was written in 2015 by a fake version of Megan Trainer, who is a musician you've probably heard of. I don't have anything against her, but at, especially that year when, when her first song came out, it was a very, very perfect encapsulation of, nope, the world says you need to know a whole bunch of things about a person again. Here we go. It's one of my favorite jokes about this cognitive load we all deal with, and I find that jokes make it easier to think about and feel about. So there you go. Enjoy. What else is in the footnotes? Well, as I speak to you, I am fresh off a delightful live episode of this podcast in Los Angeles. It'll come your way in the next few weeks. We had the best time. My many thanks to Dan Hopper, Caitlin Gill, Amy Nicholson, and Danielle Radford for making that time. And hey, 
if you would like a live podcast in your other city besides Los Angeles, guess what, Chicago? Guess what, St. Paul, Minnesota, and basically Minneapolis, because that's how the Twin Cities work. We are coming there. April 11th, Chicago's Lincoln Hall. We will have a show with guests Sarah Sherman, Maya Dukmasova, and Jane Daly. Then we are in St. Paul, Minnesota at Amsterdam Bar and Hall on April 12th with guests John Moe, Chloe Radcliffe, and Elaine Tyler May. Links to tickets to those shows are in the footnotes. Please join me in your lovely Midwestern cities that I can't wait to be in. You know what else? Please join me in listening very soon to Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band because it is this show's theme music. Aren't they great? They are. Also, this episode was engineered by Devin Bryant and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A thing you can titrate out into manageable doses. Don't let Twitter just like wash over you like a wave, you know? It's it's much more of a mental dessert. That's, that's how I kind of try to treat it. And my own sweet, tasty Twitter account is at Alex Schmitty. I regretted that phrasing as soon as I said it. Too bad. Steamrolling forward. Leaving it in. And telling you my Instagram is at Alex Schmitstagram. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.